You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. Ed Harris here talking to today, Jim Bianco. He is the president and founder of Bianco Research. Welcome back, Jim. Thanks for having me, Ed. Uh, you are representing, I see, with uh, with your attire. Uh, I know that you spoke to my colleague, uh, Ash Bennington, which is one of the reasons that you're representing. So uh, kudos to you for the for T-shirt. The yeah, well, it's a great T-shirt. You guys, um, kudos to you guys for actually making it. Excellent. Now, we're, you know, we were talking earlier. We're not going to talk about crypto today. It's banned from from today's discussion because there's so many other things that we can talk about. Um, I want to pick your brain on this whole concept of transitory, in particular because I was talking to our good friend Peter Bookbar earlier today about what does that really mean, transitory, because. There are scenarios where the inflation is high enough for long enough that even if it is transitory, it has some meaningful impact on the economy and on on markets. Uh, when you think transitory, how do you think about that? Well, you're right. I mean, there's two different ways you can look at transitory. I think the market thinks transitory would mean that by the fall, you would start to see signs that the elevated inflation levels we have now are receding back towards the 2%, towards it not being a big deal by the fall. I think that's what the market thinks. But when you listen to people like Vice Chairman Rich Clarida and some others, they'll say elevated inflation could stay till 22 or 23 and still be transitory. Two and a half years, and that's still transitory? Are you going to also tell me that the 70s was transitory too? Like go, the, go the whole nine yards? I don't think that the market is thinking that you're going to see inflation being that elevated for that period of time. So if the Fed thinks that they we could see three handles like we have now on core or four handles like we have now on headline inflation, and Next year and into 23, we could continue to see those types of numbers or stay in that range. And the marketplace is going to say, oh, this is just all transitory. It will go away in a year or so. I, I think there will be a rude awakening because I don't think the market is going to be as patient as the Fed wants them to be when it comes to what transitory means. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, when you look at the bond market, uh, 160 in the 10 year, it seems like we're sort of in this days, this uh, this Goldilocks uh, place between 150 and 170. Not much volatility. It's almost as if the market has given up, at least for the time being. Uh, how do you see the present market conditions on a day like today? No, I think that that's exactly right. That it's kind of given up a little bit. You, the volatility we've seen in the bond market. The last time you've got a, the last time we saw this low volatility, you got to go pre-pandemic. So it's really calmed down. But let's look at the bigger picture. We were 50 basis points last August. We peaked at 177, 178 at the end of March. 
160 now. If the bond market thought that inflation was transitory and would dissipate like the Fed, I think it'd be at one to one and a quarter right now. If the bond market thought that inflation was not transitory, it'd be on its way to two. But because it's just under 15 or 20 basis points under the March high, I think the message from the market is it's that it's to be determined. We're not quite sure what to make of the inflation story. We're not going to say it's transitory. We're not going to say we have a problem. We're just trying to figure out where we're going to go next with this message. And I would also argue to you that in the larger financial markets, that the 10-year yield is ground zero. Because it seems like if you go back the last two or three weeks, we had a couple of 2% days there where the market, the stock market really took a hit. What was also present on those days? We're at 169, 170 on the 10-year note. When the 10-year starts getting back towards 169, 170, the markets get weak. The risk markets like stocks get weak in the knees. Uh-oh, here comes inflation. You back off to 155, 160, which is where we are now, the risk markets breathe a sigh of relief. We don't have inflation. So I worry that if we do have another inflation move, that we're going to see yields go above 170, the stock market isn't going to take that very well. And it, we've seen some early indications of that. So it seems like everybody's focused on the 10-year, and they're waiting for the 10-year to kind of tell them where the inflation story is going to go. And for now, as it continues sideways, indeterminate, good enough, we could continue to rally markets right now, at least risk markets. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. When I'm looking at the market today, I'm looking at the Dow, you know, 0.4% uh, up. We've got the S&P, you know, just barely up 0.12%. Uh, and the NASDAQ, uh, almost entirely flat. This is in a market where, you know, the 10-year was up uh, three basis points. It's still at 160. It does seem like that is the toggle that people are thinking about. But how long can we stay in this range uh, given what you're thinking about inflation and th this whole transitory thing? Because you're talking about people saying, okay, uh, we're going to give you a free pass up until this point, where Claret is talking about actually a much longer period of time. At what point do people start to suss out that uh, Clarida is, is for real and that they're willing to take higher levels of inflation for a longer period of time? See, I don't think they're going to they're gonna take Claire to this word, because I've often said when the Fed says, oh, we'll, we, the Fed, will tolerate 2.5% inflation, we, the Fed, think transitory goes into 2023, uh, it's not your call. It's the market's call. The market is okay with that. If the market was truly okay with that, that it thought that in, in transitory inflation would last till 2023, then you would probably see one and a quarter yields, which you're not seeing yet. You still might see that. But I, I do think that the Fed's going to run into a problem where that they are going, the market is going to react and it's going to force their hand. Uh, and so we saw this in the fourth quarter of 18. Remember, they said, oh, we're going to taper. It's going to be like watching paint dry. It's on automatic pilot. And the stock market fell out of bed. And within two weeks, the Fed reverse course, the Powell pivot that you had in January of 19. You could see something similar to that if you were to see rates spike up higher. And what could also be another catalyst? Let's look at the news today. The $6 trillion budget 
came out mm. today, which, you know, that is a that is a, a stair step higher in the federal budget is what, what we're talking about, trillion dollar deficits for the next decade. But more importantly, to me at least, was Biden's comment that we've got to work on infrastructure because we've got to take advantage of these low rates. In other words, he's saying, Janet, start the, start start issuing more bonds because if I can get bonds issued at 160, 170, uh, if I can get two-year notes issued at 15 basis points, why isn't the Treasury doing it weekly two-year notes or something like that? Problem with that mentality is you go ahead and make that reality, and those low rates will disappear real fast. Uh, so if if the mentality in Washington is that the market is signaling to them we can run giant deficits, we can run huge piles supply out in the market because they're willing to buy 10-year notes at 80 basis points below the inflation rate and negative real yield. I think they'll find real fast that the market's not going to take that and that we could see a big move in rates very, very fast. You know, and that's into the future. So we're talking about into the future. But if we go, if we go back to the present right now, this whole Goldilocks period between 150 and 170, what we're seeing in the market is the likes of GameStop and AMC today popping, uh, doing incredibly well. I think you were saying before we came on that AMC hit an all-time high. Uh, Th that seems to be what's taking the market forward. What do you make in particular of these meme stocks really catching a bid? What does it say about the broader market in general? And then what do you think about the specifics of the meme stocks themselves? Um, I think, you know, that there's a couple of things. One, the big picture is speculation is alive and well. The you know low interest rates, the the perception that the government's got your back, the Fed's got your back, the stimulus that's been stuffed into the market, it hasn't quit. So that you've got all of this speculation. Another tangent to that is, boy, the short sellers they all need to go and study Medcalf's law about the network effects because they they're they're getting run over yet again in these mean stocks mean stocks because they don't understand network effects. Because it seems like the Reddit crowd found out that when everything slowed down, the short sellers came back in a bunch of these stocks. And OK, now we're going to just ramp it all up again and run them over. You know, version two is what we've what we've got going on. So you've got and I know we don't want to talk about it, but you've also got the volatility, and the wildness of crypto as well, too. So you've got a lot of animal spirits that are being pushed into this market. Because the perception is there isn't much risk. And because anytime anything gets a little bit wobbly, that you'll either have the federal government, the Fed, or both come in and basically try and um, you know, smooth out all of the edges. So why wouldn't you be a little bit more of a risk taker in this environment? But you know, let's look at the uh, this network effect from a different angle. Uh, this is the angle I'm thinking of. You can, uh, let's call it the Hertz angle. The angle is 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 that uh, if we uh, if we support a company like AMC, uh, then uh, you know keep keep the the stock price elevated. Somehow this will prevent uh, th they can raise capital, they can do all sorts of things, they can raise debt. It will prevent outcomes like Hertz. And even in the case of Hertz, when the company went bankrupt and people were speculating in in the stock. Those people were actually uh, paid handsomely, 
Uh, I think they got something like $8 a share. That's where they went to, even though Hertz went bankrupt. So on some level, you know, when you think about uh, network effects, maybe it has a, a potential to uh, change the the capital structure of a company, give it the legs necessary to get through hard times. What do you think of that oh, possibility? Oh, I, I think that that's exactly right. And that's what I think that when I said the short sellers need to go and, and understand network effects, that that's it, that they that the network effects could become self-fulfilling. You're right. You, Hertz is one. The other big example from last year is the airlines. It was almost a year ago this week when the Buffett released his annual report and he said he sold all his airlines and he wished them well. And then the the the, the Reddit crowd back then ran everybody into the airlines and like the Jets ETF and everything else took off. That enabled the airlines to issue more debt, you know, and issue and get loans to get over the hump because it improved their financial position. So it becomes somewhat self-fulfilling. We saw it with the airlines, we saw it with Hertz, we're now seeing it with GameStop, we're seeing it with AMC um, and the like. So this is kind of something new when it comes to finance is that if the, if the network decides that you're a winner and we push your stock up enough, well, then you could start acting like a winner. You could start issuing equity at higher prices. You can get better terms on loans. Maybe you can even get a loan or issue bonds uh, as well, too. That can get you over the hump. The uh, uh, the amusement parks like the Six Flags and the, um, and, and the Carnivals and the Royal Caribbeans of the world, they were able to do something similar to this as well, too, in a network effect. You know, as you were saying that, it occurred to me, gosh, if you think, if you take that same dynamic and then you apply it to real winners, you know, over the longer term and and over a shorter period of time, maybe the same things at play. So let me give you two names and you tell me if you think that it applies to that effect. The first name is Amazon. I'm thinking about Amazon even though people came up with this whole thing about, you know, they were spinning off free cash flow. And the reason, if you look at their cash flow statement versus their income statement, the reason that they had such a huge PE was because actually they were, you know, using a lot of, of uh, growth CapEx. Um, but that aside, you know, for years, Amazon had, you know, triple digit PEs and people were just like, how is this even possible that this company is getting all this money? Second thing is uh, Tesla. Same thing uh, with Tesla, that so many people love the company. Is it possible that Tesla becomes the next Amazon, becomes a winner simply because it, uh, it has the network effects of belief behind it? Uh, this is different, obviously, than the internet bubble when everything popped. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of this as how long can this go on before uh, you know, something bad catches up with you? Yeah, no, this can go on for a long time, and you're right. I think also in the network effects of an Amazon and a Tesla, there was a, a belief that these companies were going to be right in the long term. You're right. I heard for years and years people say, well, if, if Wall Street would let my company run with no profits for years and years and let me have access to the capital markets like Amazon would, I would do as well as them. Yeah, but the, the, the marketplace doesn't believe in your company as much as they believed in Amazon or in Tesla. And the network effects in those two companies also have another dynamic to it, too. 
Who is a shareholder in Amazon? Probably somebody who uses the product. Who is a shareholder in Tesla? Somebody who probably drives a Tesla as well, too. So you've got people that not only believe in the company and use the product, they buy the stock. Now, let's, con let's contrast that to an old line company like a Dollar Tree or a McDonald's. Most of the people that buy McDonald's products or shop at Dollar Tree don't own those stocks. Right. Uh, is, you know, and so they don't get that network effect that you can get out of an Amazon or that you can get out of a Tesla as well, too. This is part of the new economy uh, thing that we're starting to see that um, Apple has the same thing, too. A lot of big right. Apple people that love Apple products will own Apple stock. Um, and so this is a leg up advantage that these companies have that no one else has. And when you promote the speculation, the in, the people that are buying stocks, they're not buying Dollar Tree or, or McDonald's. I mean, some value investors might because maybe they got good cash flow. They're buying all these other companies and they're just helping to promote the new economy. They're helping to promote these new technologies. So, uh, you know, I I have two forks in the road in terms of ways that we can go. First, I was thinking about MGM, if you had any thoughts on that. I'm going to table that for a second unless you do and you can add that on. But at the same time, I was also thinking about, um, okay, let's play devil's advocate here. Let's say that we get an inflation shock uh, from some data by August, September timeframe. The 10-year goes to 180. We're in a reopening. So, you know, this whole concept of people on their Robinhood accounts, you know, at home in lockdown, uh, driving the market forward isn't necessarily going to be the case at that point. Can this continue on with AMC and GameStop, or do they get stopped out by the rise in interest rates? I think that there's a risk that they could get stopped out by the rise in interest rates because the, the savings rate is 22% right now, so 22% of your income you're saving, which is the second highest it's ever been. Only last April, was it April 2020, was it higher when we got the original CARES Act money uh, as well, too? So a lot of people are looking at this money and they're waiting for the absolute signal that it's safe to spend it. And I even think a lot of the Robin Hooders too. I mean, I, I got my stimulus money, I put it in the market, I made money in the market. How do I know that? Because it's near, it's closer to the highs than than not. Um, maybe I want to I want to indulge myself, a vacation, a new car, new furniture for my apartment, upgraded my house, fill in the blank. And you could then start to see that movement, and that perpetuates, I think, what's happening. My argument has been, everybody says that the problem is the supply chain's broken, and that's why you're seeing these higher prices. It's not broken. It's being forced down huge demand on the supply chain. We want, we want stuff, and we want it now, and the supply chain can't keep up. If the supply chain was broken, Shipping rates out of China would be plunging. Those, those big container ships would be sitting off the coast of Shanghai with nothing to do. Instead, shipping rates are soaring. Uh, uh, trucking rates, per mile trucking rates in the United States are soaring right now. If the, if the supply chain was broken, a lot of these independent 18-wheelers uh, would be sitting around with nothing to do. They can't run their trucks fast enough, and they're getting record amounts of per mile rates in order to ship. We want stuff. So when you get that inflation burst, I think that will come about with this wholesale shift of people wanting to buy things 
and it will just keep the inflation perspective or keep the inflation pressure up on the market, and that could really feed into the bond market, and everybody's taking their cue off the tenure. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, when you say that, I immediately think to Europe because the other thing that's going on today is uh, on the rates. It was interesting because I saw that uh, Greece say that they're going to have 70% of their population vaccinated by July. They're taking in foreigners. You know, their economy is getting going. And while that's happening, I don't know if you saw this, I uh, uh, tweeted to you that when you look at the dollar index and the euro index, they're like mirror images of each other uh, with uh, the dollar index uh, at its lowest level since 2017 or near the lowest. And then we have uh, the euro index at levels that I'm looking at now we haven't seen in 15 years. Uh, and first of all, what do you make of what's happening in the currency markets and how much of that's related to the European reopening? And then how much is that going to exacerbate the picture that you just painted? Well, I think a couple of things. Europe has been behind the U.S. and it's finally starting to reopen. And that's going to put more pressure on supply chains because they're going to want to buy stuff, too. Right. They we, they didn't mail checks to the extent that we did to their populations. They did have stimulus, but not like we did. So they might not be in the market with as much money burning a hole in their pocket as we are. But nevertheless, the supply chains are already stretched so bad anyway. Now we're going to add 300 million people from Europe to say that they want to start buying things as well, too. So you could start seeing the supply chains really start to move. The inflation problem is I think more centered in the U.S. Mm -hmm. because of stimulus than Europe. That's why I think the dollar has been weakening. The dollar, I think, has got two, two things going for it. Remember a year ago, the dollar was a strong, it was a tower of power because it was the safe currency. When everything was coming apart, put your money in dollars because that's right. the reserve currency. Well, now the risk off trade is hurting the dollar. Because now, you know, look at what the emerging currencies are doing. And, you know, the Europeans, you know, run into Europe because it's reopening, et cetera. And where is the inflation right now? Well, inflation's in two places. It's in the United States. And because of the stimulus, it's also in, in China as well, too. Right. And they're talking about cracking down on, uh, you know, their, the strength of the yuan and the cracking down on commodity price speculation as well, too. But China's more of a closed economy. They could have inflation, and it doesn't mean much for the rest of the world. But the U.S. is really where I think the center of the rest of the world's inflation is, which is what I think it's winding up hurting the dollar. Right. That, that, that makes sense. Um, so let's talk about the Fed's reaction function, given all of this. Um, the We're talking about a period of time, let's call it two or three months, where some of these pressures could be building. And then at some point, uh, the market's going to say, wait a minute, uh, the numbers are, are, are too high. Uh, what does the Fed do? How, do, how does uh, the Fed think about tapering in that context? 
Well, I think if you look at the reaction function right now, <clears throat> the Fed's reaction function has shifted from being data dependent to being more time dependent. What do I mean by that? This week, Rich Clarida came out and said there might become a time when we've got to start thinking about tapering. Remember famously a month ago, Chairman Powell said, we're not thinking about thinking about tapering. Well, the Fed is thinking about thinking about tapering. So there's I don't know if that's a policy shift, but it's <laughs> definitely a it's definitely a movement towards it. The conventional wisdom is that they'll go from thinking about thinking about to thinking about at Jackson Hole. They'll make the announcement at Jackson right. Hole, which is in the end of August, that we're that tapering is on the table, and then they'll announce tapering in the first quarter. You know, that, by the way, that Jackson Hole shift, would that be, could you get a taper tantrum from that? You, you could, you could, because I was just going to say the contrarian in me says, okay, since everybody's on this idea that Jackson Hole and then first quarter, okay, that's not what's going to happen because everybody expects exactly for that to happen. And one of the ways you can get that, that taper tantrum is in the next few months, if you start to see the inflation number stay sticky high, the market might be saying, you're not moving fast enough. Right, let right. Me, let me offer you one idea as to why you could see those numbers sticky high. Uh -huh. um, OER, owner's equivalent rent, that's the way that we measure inflation right now. It has been falling, owner's equivalent rent. It has been an offset to higher inflation. It is a third of core inflation, owner's equivalent rent. It's going down, yet we still have 3% OE, uh, core inflation. Why is it falling? Because of the, of the rent um, uh, or the eviction moratorium. If I, have a, if I have a rental, if I rent out properties and I have somebody who has not been paying, I can't evict them till September when the bill expires unless they extend it again. Well, if I happen to be one of the units that is part of this survey uh, from the uh, from um, uh, BLS, and they ask, they'll ask me how much rent do I take in? Okay, here's my total rental rental income. How many units do I have? Well, I got a couple of units in there, maybe that have zero. That I'm taking in zero rent on those units. When they calculated, when they figured out how to calculate OER, it never occurred to them, nor should it have. That what happens if there's a rental moratorium and we've got all these people that aren't paying? So it's right. artificially depressing rents. You get rid of the rent moratorium. And if you look at Google search trends uh, as well, that the number of people I want to rent is booming. You could see a huge snapback in OER at the same time that maybe the rest of the stuff in, in core inflation starts to moderate. It keeps the core inflation numbers high is what it could wind up doing. And so at that point, if that's what seems to start to unfold towards the end of the summer, there you could have a taper tantrum because the market could look around and go, we don't have six months for you to, to articulate why you're going to start tapering and then another year for raising rates. We have an inflation problem now, now, and you need to start thinking about it now. Now, that's right. what I'm thinking might could happen in the fall. And that's how you wind up with a taper tantrum. You're so far behind the curve that I don't want to own minus 80 basis point real yield bonds. I don't want anything to do with them because you're so far behind the curve. And then everybody gets rid of their bonds and that's why rates go up. I think the risk in this market is, you know, um, uh, people are trying to make the case for rates falling or they're making the case that rates could go up. I think the risk is they go up a lot faster 
a lot sooner than everybody thinks that they wind up going up. And it starts to become very bothersome uh, for for the uh, stock market. I know that the right. conventional wisdom is we're going to go to 2% on the 10-year, and it's going to be a reflection of all things good, and that right. that will lead the stock market to new highs. Not if it's because of inflation. 2% bonds would be a big problem at that point. You, the, you know, as you were saying all of that, I was thinking about the other side of uh, the rental uh, picture, which is uh, buying, because the house prices are going through the roof. So when we talk about inflation, you know, house price inflation is massive, and the Fed is buying up MBS. They're also buying up uh, treasuries. So what's your thinking about the nexus of MBS purchases, tapering, and massive house price inflation? Is there something there from a policy perspective or from the market leading the Fed in a direction? Yeah, so let me give a shout out to Joe Carson. He's the retired chief economist from Allianz who writes the Carson Report. And he points out that in the 1980s, we used to use home prices instead of this OER mechanism. Right. For, if we were still using house prices today, we'd have 8% headline inflation right now, today. If we did it, if we calculated the same way that we did a generation or so ago. Uh, so that's that shows you how much house prices would have mattered to inflation now um, ver ver versus then. But you're right. Part of the thing is cheap financing, and part of it is a speculative attitude in the market that uh, I can go ahead and I can go ahead and pay the offer price for this house, and I can get a cheap loan, and the Fed will keep rates low, and I can refinance it at a lower rate. You know, kind of a 0506 mentality about ho housing. As far as the Fed goes. There's also another problem with all of this quantitative easing and the uh, Treasury uh, uh, pulling down their balance sheet is that there's way too much, uh, there's way too many reserves in the banking system. So you've been seeing a spike in reserve uh, reverse repos. 485 billion was the number today, a new all time high for the first time in four years. What's going on there? There's so, yeah. many, re there's so many reserves in the banking system. And that when, there's so many places you could put reserves, like you could put it in general collateral repo, you could put it in one month bills, just to use two examples. Those are negative. Those rates are minus one basis point right now. But if I'm a money market fund, I don't want to keep buying negative rates because as I buy negative rates, I risk my NAV falling below $1. I could print eventually print a 99 cent NAV over time if I keep buying negative rates and keep losing money on those on those investments. So here's the Fed offering reverse repo at zero. All right, I'll take zero because then at least I don't break the buck. How did Europe get away with this? Because Europe never promised a fixed rate NAV on their money funds. Their money funds go out to four basis points and it does vacillate up and down. But in the United States, by offering fixed rate $1 NAVs, we think that's the safest investment that you could possibly, because it's $1 every day. It never changes. It's it, it, There's nothing safer than putting your money in a money market fund. Even in 08, when we started to see them break the buck, the Fed moved heaven and earth to hold $1. So we've got this mentality in the US that if we were to ever see a money fund break the buck, it's like opening the gates of hell. And these money fund managers know it, and they don't want to. So 
I'll take zero from the Fed versus minus one basis point in the market. Too many reserves, and it all comes back to too much QE. And that the $40 billion a month in, in mortgages, the $80 billion a month in treasuries, and the Treasury Department running down their cash balances, which injects money back into the banking system, because their cash balances are considered outside the banking system, and then by running them down, they push them in. There's, there's probably going to be, at the next meeting in mid-June, an announcement of some kind of a technical adjustment, uh, either to OER or maybe to... Um, uh, the, the the purchases, maybe they move away from mortgages and move more into treasuries, but hold that 120 right, billion, yes. ex extend maturities or something, because this is not going away. It's it's continuing to get worse with this oversupply of of of, of reserves in the banking system and these negative rates on the front end of the curve are not going to go away, and we're going to wind up with the entire money market system basically as the counterparty of the Federal Reserve, because everybody's going to pile into reserve reverse repo. Thanks for explaining that. I mean, I think that is quality analysis. Uh, it's good to know that that's what's going on. Uh, the plumbing, it's always uh, you know, something in the background. that. If I, if I can also throw in, Ed, real quick about the plumbing. The history of plumbing problems have also been that when the Fed has a plumbing problem, 2019 was like this. Remember, they kept raising the interest on excess reserves five basis points, and Paul would say, "Oh, it's just a technical plumbing issue. It in no right, way, exactly. in no way affects monetary policy." And then September 2019 comes, and the repo market blows up. These plumbing problems, the the more the Fed has to deal with a plumbing issue and then dismisses it as a plumbing issue, the more I get worried. Because the one thing I know about plumbing problems is they're so unbelievably complicated that the most qualified people at the Fed still don't understand this stuff. And you and me, we don't understand this stuff squared. And that's why you wind up with problems all the way down the line. So when I see a plumbing problem, I think no one's got their head around what this is because you can't have your head around it. Because if you did, you'd never have the plumbing problem in the first place. You would have headed it off months ago before it became an issue. And therefore, it's always a risk. So we'll have to see. There is a plumbing problem right now. Doesn't mean it's a risk today or tomorrow or next week. But if it's not addressed in the proper way, it can metastasize into a bigger issue. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I have all sorts of analogies running through my head when we talk about plumbing <laughs> and, and toilets overflowing. Right. And just very bad things happening. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. Well, um, exactly. You know, uh, let me finish this off today with one last thing that I'm looking at. Uh, that is the claims data. You know, I, I, I wrote a post on uh, credit write-downs uh, looking at uh, what the last three recessions looked like, or the last three recoveries from recession. And we were about, you know, the mid-400s. Uh, on uh, average, um, four-week claims at uh, initial claims at this particular juncture, we're starting to get to that point now. We're slightly higher just because we're coming down very rapidly. So we're, we've come down to a 400 level this week, but the four-week average is still relatively high. Um, what do you think about um, where we are from an employment perspective, given the claims data coming down as rapidly as they are now? Uh, it's good news that it's coming down. I ultimately think what's happening with claims, it, let's back up a second. 
remember the payroll myths last month. It was million jobs expected, 266,000 jobs printed. We were off by 734,000 jobs, which is the largest miss ever recorded. I'm of the camp that what was driving that miss was part of the 0.7% increase in, in, in uh, unit labor costs, that people were getting paid to not work, and you needed to seriously raise salaries to get them back to work. But instead of raising salaries, what we see now is 23 states have stopped giving the, um, uh, the extra $300 a week from the federal government in their state unemployment programs as an incentive to get people to work seems to be working because the, the um, claims numbers are falling right now. But, you're, you know, we've got a ways to go. 400,000 claims in any other recovery would be considered too high a number. There's been some recessions where we didn't get to 400,000, um, let alone without the come down to 400,000. I know we got higher than that in 08, but if you go back and look at 2000 or 91, uh, as well. We never really got to these kind of, this is where we were during the recession uh, as well, too. So I think the claims numbers are showing that people are starting to go to work, but they need an enticement to go to work. Either you have to take away the extra 300 bucks a week, or you have to raise salaries in order to get them to go back to work. Now, what's interesting about this is of the 23 states that have pulled back on the $300 a week, they're almost all red states. A lot of the yeah. blue, a lot of the blue states are still offering the three hundred bucks, and those are big states: New York, California. The, those those employers are going to have to raise wages to get those people back into their shops right now. Well, I can just say that it sounds like a natural experiment to see, uh, you know, which which method works because we'll see how the economies uh, work out in the, in those different places. So, you know, as always, Jim, it, it's a pleasure. Uh, great talking to you. Uh, I think we slipped one, one or two words of crypto in there, but uh, for the most part, we, we just let you, your shirt, do the talking. Yeah, <laughs> that's plenty. Thanks Thank again. Thank you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.